I have been gone a lot lately. I've been traveling. I have spoken about two places every week. Tomorrow, Sherry and I are leaving for Austin, Texas. I will be there for a few days filming at World Video Bible School. And then we are traveling to Dallas, Texas, where I will be doing a gospel meeting Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Then Monday, we will be going to Little Rock, Arkansas, and we will be coming back on Tuesday. So please remember us in your prayers. I'm teaching the Sunday morning class, but I'm gone so much right now, it's hard to get into a book or a groove. And so until the summer is over, I think I'm just going to cover some random lessons during Bible class. And then once uh, the, the uh, fall sets in and I'm going to be here more regularly, we'll get into a regular class period because you, hit, uh, you start studying a book and then you leave it. And then you come back, then you leave it, and it's hard to follow. So this is maybe going to be better. I want to share with you a lesson that I was just recently asked to cover, and I covered this in Kentucky. The assignment that they gave me was Heaven, Hell, and Eternity by God's Design. Heaven, Hell, and Eternity by God's Design. Now, every one of these concepts are very serious concepts, but the concept of hell we, you think about that, it's, you would say that's as horrible as you can get thinking about hell. But when you pair hell and eternity, that just becomes unbearable. It is the kind of thing that will make you lie awake in your bed at night, tossing and turning and the acid churning in your stomach. The concept of hell is something that has long been used by the atheist to deny the existence of God. And the way they will use it is this. They will say, if God is all loving, how could he create mankind knowing that many would go to hell? I want to start off this discussion with something that a young Christian lady said to me recently. And it has been eating at me every single day since she said it. She said, I no longer believe like you do. Now, any time a Christian says something like that, that is devastating, and it is shocking. And after I composed myself, I asked her, what do you mean by that? Do, do you mean you're an atheist now? Do you mean that you are a denominationalist now? Are you an agnostic? What do you mean by this? And she said, I will send you something to help explain, and she sent me two books. These are the two books. This is not working. Okay, it's not on. These are the two books that she sent me links to. The first one is by a man named Bart Ehrman. It is called Forged. He is a Bible textual critic. He argues that we cannot trust our Bibles because he says we don't have the originals. He said we don't even have copies of the originals. He said, we don't even have copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. And he said, down through the uh, centuries, as the Bible would be copied, what would end up happening is we have a corrupted text. And what we have now are thousands of different manuscripts, and all of the different manuscripts are different. In fact, he argues that we have 
over 400,000 variations in all the Bible text, so we don't have any clue what God said in the first place. Now, I'm going to stop right there for just a second. Have you ever wondered about, about that yourself? Has anyone ever brought this up to you and, and said, we can't trust, I see a few heads nodding, uh, that we can't trust our Bibles? Apparently, this young lady was saying, this is one of the things that had an impact on me. Bart Ehrman, I actually, um, GBN, several years ago, we had hosted a debate, and uh, Kyle Butt from Apologetics Press debated Bart Ehrman. And so after it was over, I interviewed him, uh, have met him. He did not impress me. He is a Ph.D. in textual criticism of the Bible. He went through Princeton Theological Seminary, and so he's very, very high um, accredited for this field. He has a lot of credentials. He has written several books now that have gone to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And these are books, all of them are in the same frame. Um, one of the books was called um, Misquoting Jesus. That might have been his, his most popular book. This is his most recent book, and it's called Forged. You rarely ever, maybe until Bart Ehrman, see a book on textual criticism, on ancient manuscripts that goes to the top of the bestsellers list. But there seems to be a hunger in our society for people who want to say you can't believe the Bible. And so when he puts out a book like this that says you can't believe the Bible, people have clamored to it, and it has shaken the faith of people. Now, um, in fact, let me just see. How many people in here have had it, anyone call you on this or challenge you on this, the idea we can't believe our Bibles? Okay, a few. Um, when people have said this, what exactly did they say? Anyone want to offer what was brought up? Most of it, when I've encountered that, has been people are doing it from the standpoint of confusion. Like, okay. Who's got it figured out? We've got, oh. we've got the Torah, the Quran, we've got. Okay. They're all, all the different writings, so why is the Bible? Why do you believe that versus the other? That's a typical argument. Okay, all right. Um, any other thoughts? Okay, that the Bible's been corrupted and changed and with scribes. Okay, they say that there's contradictions in the Bible and that uh, you can't believe this one because it uh, contradicts another passage. That is something that is said. Josh? Yes, I've heard many people over the years say, the Bible we have was given to us by the Catholic Church. Have you ever heard that? Several people? And so it is a production of Catholicism. And so this young girl first said that what Bart Ehrman has said in this book, Forged, had a lot to do with making her lose her faith. I've spent a lot of time studying this since I got this... Uh, this message from this young lady. And it is actually, it's become interesting to me. When Bart Ehrman says that there are 400,000 
contradictions in the Bible. Basically, what he means is, it's, it sounds a lot worse than it is. It makes it sound like you can't trust the Bible. But as I've dug into this, the vast majority of these contradictions, you know what they are? They're, they're spelling errors. The vast majority of them are spelling errors. If you take them out, you've taken, I forget the percentage, but you've r removed like 90% because they're either grammar or spelling errors. But then they'll say, no, 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 there are some things that are serious. Some of the most ancient manuscripts don't contain certain accounts in the Bible. Well, when you start looking, two of the biggest that they say are not there is when Jesus forgave the woman, or the woman that was, who was caught in adultery was brought to Jesus, and he said, uh, they that sin, uh, go and sin no more. He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. They say some of the oldest manuscripts don't contain that. How does that affect your Christianity? What if you took that out? Does that change anything that relates to Christianity? The fact is, when you get right down to it, and I could spend the whole rest of our time, probably for several weeks, just talking about this. But the fact of the matter is, everything that they say shouldn't be there, you could take it all out, and it doesn't change anything about the plan of salvation. It doesn't change anything about the one church. It doesn't change anything with regard to morality, the existence of God, how we should live on a day-to-day -day basis. You could take those accounts out and we would not, it would not affect any single thing that we do in the Lord's church. And so what it amounts to is this man talks things like you can't trust your Bible, you don't know uh, the original, there's all these contradictions, and it sounds, for someone who doesn't want to believe the Bible, they grab it and they latch on to that, but it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Now, the second book, any questions or comments about that? Mm -hmm. What's it called? No. Okay. I guess I should ask, do you all know what textual criticism is? It's something that, it's not a phrase that we use very often, but what textual criticism is, it's a study of ancient manuscripts. That is, they say, we're going to take the Greek manuscripts and we're going to compare them and put them together. When it comes to ancient Greek manuscripts, there are about 5,800 Greek manuscripts. And none of them agree exactly the same. Some of them are very similar. In fact, most of them are, are really small. Some of them are just pieces of parchment. So one of them might be... Uh, a section from John chapter 7. One of them might be um, one complete book. Those that are complete uh, testaments, complete New Testaments, there's I think less than 10 of those. And so uh, what, when you talk about 5,800 Greek manuscripts, what you have, uh, the study of those is called textual criticism. And since there are variations, they're trying to figure out which one is right. Now, what that amounts to in our modern day is two main studies. You've got what they call the majority text, and that is what most manuscripts say, and then they have what's called the critical text. 
And that is largely based on which are the oldest texts. If you notice, pretty much all translations fall into one of these categories. The King James Bible is based on the majority text. The New King James is based on the majority text. The ESV, the NIV, are based on the critical text. And so, if you're going through the uh, King James Bible and you get to Acts 8.37 and you remember that the Ethiopian eunuch says, See, here's water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That phrase in the King James and the majority text is not in the critical text. Why is that? Because some of the oldest manuscripts in existence don't contain it. So they begin to debate, should this be here? The majority have it, the oldest ones don't. And that's what the argument comes down to. And as I said, you can take out all the ones the critical text thinkers say don't belong, and it doesn't change anything. What if the Ethiopian eunuch didn't really say that? Does that change the fact that we need to confess Christ? Romans 10 still says, with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. That's not a disputed passage. Jesus still says in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, He that shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father in heaven. That's not a disputed passage. So you can take it out and it doesn't change anything. The point I'm making simply is, you can trust your Bible. And when people say this, I think they go to the Bible looking for a reason not to trust it. Okay, the second book that she mentioned is a book called Faith Unraveled. It is by a woman named Rachel Held Evans. She actually died a few years ago. She died of cancer when she was 37 years old. Her book is subtitled, how a girl who knew all the answers learned to ask questions. I just finished reading it uh, last week. She also is a best-selling author. And in this book, she tells how her faith became unraveled. It's because she says that she was raised in a conservative Christian home. She was a Baptist. Her dad was a preacher, and he taught in a seminary. She said she grew up doing sword drills. You know what a sword drill is? I'm getting some strange looks, but we grew up doing sword drills. What we mean by that is, since Ephesians 6.17 calls the Bible the sword of the Spirit, all the kids in class, they would say, turn to Matthew 7.7, and everyone would turn there, and whoever could get it first would read it. Did y'all ever do that? We did that lots of times, sword drills. And it was to teach you to find passages in your Bible as fast as you possibly can. She said she grew up studying apologetics, that is how to defend the Bible. She grew up memorizing scripture and quoting it back. She grew up defending the faith. She said when she graduated, she went to a faith-based Christian college. And so she had it drilled into her her whole life that no one could have been more solid in believing the Bible and being a Christian than she was. But she says everything changed in 2001. I called this, the first point in the lesson I did, I called it the loathing God. Now I'm going to read to you 
Why? I'm going to read you a segment of her book, and it's actually pretty interesting. It's longer than I would normally like to read, but this book has impacted a lot of young people. And the concept that this lady grappled with is one that young people and old people have grappled with. Now, I'm going to read to you this quote. I've got part of it up here on the board. She said, it was just before the United States invaded Afghanistan in 2001, and the press had been airing a series of crude home videos depicting the human rights abuses of the Taliban. She said the most recent footage came from Behind the Veil, which was an undercover documentary that highlights the oppression of women in that country. My classmates and I watched as a woman enshrouded in a heavy blue burqa arrived at a soccer stadium. She turned to the left and turned to the right as if she was disoriented. The camera zoom was so tight that everything was trembling. Then, from the left-hand corner of the screen, an executioner approached the woman, methodically lifted his gun to the back of her head, and fired. Several of the girls in the lobby gasped. The documentary suddenly cut to the next image in which another veiled woman rushed to the body to make sure that it was still properly hidden by the burqa. The woman's lifeless form lay face up, and I noticed that she wore tennis shoes. I later learned that her name was Zarmina. She was, 30, she was a 35-year-old mother of five whose husband had a reputation for abusing her. She had married him when she was just 16, the Taliban never found a murder weapon, but locals report that they got a confession out of Zarmina after beating her for two days with steel cables. Convicted in the back of a pickup truck, accused of murdering her husband, she was flanked by the Taliban officers, according to the narrator. They intended to make an example of her before nearly 30,000 spectators. CNN re repeatedly aired the tape, perhaps to make us feel better about going to war against the Taliban. But it wasn't the Taliban that I was angry with. Each time I watched Zarmina's execution, now listen to this, I got angrier and angrier with God. God was the one who claimed to have formed Zarmina in her womb. It was God who ordained that she be born in a third world country under an oppressive regime. God had the power and the resources at His disposal to stop this from happening. And yet God did nothing. Worst of all, 20 years of Christian education assured me that because Zarmina was a Muslim, she would suffer unending torment in hell for the rest of eternity. How the Taliban punished Zarmina in this life was nothing compared to how God was going to punish her in the next life. Suddenly, concepts about heaven and hell, election and free will, religious plural pluralism and exclusivism had a name. That name was Zarmina. I felt like I could come to terms with Zarmina's suffering if it were restricted to this life, if I knew that God would grant her some sort of justice after death. But the idea that this woman passed from agony to agony, from torture to torture, from a lifetime of pain and sadness to an eternity of pain and sadness, all because she had less information about the gospel than I did? It seemed cruel. It seemed even sadistic. God knew long before Zarmina was born 
before her first giggle, before her first steps, before her first words, that this was her fate. He knew it from the beginning, and yet He created her anyway. I wondered how many millions of people like Zarmina died in every, every day in similar circumstances. Was I supposed to believe that all of these people went to hell because they weren't Christians? In Sunday school, they always make hell out to be a place for people like Hitler, not for his victims. But if my Sunday school teachers and my college professors were, were right, then heaven will be populated not only by people like Hitler and Stalin and Hussein, but also by the people that they persecuted. If only Christians go to heaven, then the piles of suitcases and bags of human hair displayed at the Holocaust Museum represent thousands upon thousands of men and women and children suffering eternal agony, now listen to this phrase, at the hands of an angry God. If salvation is available only to Christians, then the gospel isn't good news at all. For most of the human race, it is terrible news. But that's not fair. How was she supposed to know any different? All of her life, she was taught that Islam is the only true religion, just like we were taught all of our lives that Christianity is the only true religion. Now listen to this phrase. God didn't give her a chance. All of my life, I imagined God as a warm, faceless light, a sort of benevolent, eternal sunshine. Now it was as if I had discovered a giant crack in the biblical worldview wall. The more I studied the crack, the more fractures I noticed growing out of it. I began to worry that this thing with Zarmina might be a foundational problem, that there might be something seriously wrong with Christianity something that can't be fixed. Now that's a long reading, but it gives you an idea of what this book is about. This young girl said, I don't believe like you do anymore. This destroyed or unraveled her faith. And first, she says, there's this book that says we can't even trust our Bibles. And if we can trust our Bibles, then you get down to this person who is suffering. God doesn't give her a chance. And they argue, she argues in this book, it has to do with the region that you grew up in. If you grew up in the United States, you probably will encounter Christians and everything's okay. If you grew up in Iraq, then you're probably not going to encounter Christians and everything's not okay. You're probably going to be lost because of that. Have you ever had someone bring up this type of argument to you? Absolutely. Chris? Okay. All right. I agree. Any other thoughts about this? Please. That's true. 
Cletus is saying that if a person can be saved in ignorance and we go out and teach the gospel to them, now they're damned because they rejected it. The best thing we can do is, if they can be saved without the truth, is shh, don't tell them. Keep them ignorant and they can be saved that way because if you teach them, now they're lost. Okay. And I don't know how to figure that out. That's God's, that's God's figuring out there, but he's off the ball. Yeah. If somebody chose not to believe it and not to carry it forward, and that causes part of their family not to hear it, friends not to hear it, and then going forward. So God will figure out the responsibility and his type of judgment. Okay. Um, Josh? Yeah, there has to be a lot of assumptions for this argument. Stanley? Uh, after hearing what you said here, it would be also noted that God cannot lie. And so even what she's saying, that he's picking people to go to hell before the court, and that's his estimation. And I, don't, I mean, that would be my first thing that hurt. It does fit into Calvinism that God's predetermined some will be saved and that some will be lost, but that contradicts so many things the Bible teaches. Second uh, Peter tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And yet, he's saying, I'm going to have a whole class of people because of the country they grew up in, they're going to perish. It does contradict many things in the Bible. When I read this and I saw this young Christian girl said, these are the two things that shook me and made me lose my faith. Can you see how that could happen to somebody? I mean, you think about this. She's taught or she's come to believe you can't trust your Bible. In fact, it made me think we need to have some more sermons on the fact that you can trust the Bible. Proofs that the Bible is inspired. We need to have some lessons on textual criticism even so that you can see what we have really is the Word of God. Now, some of that can be boring, but some of it is a basic understanding that all Christians ought to have. Now, what about the argument this, this girl makes in this book? I called the first point in my lesson the loathing God because if God is what she describes angry, predetermined that some people don't even have a chance, I would say that's a loathsome or loathing God who would do that sort of thing. Yes, I ran across that book recently, but I don't remember who uh, wrote it either. Well, here is the next point, and I call this the longing God because we need to understand the God that she thinks exists or the God that she has concocted in her mind does not meet 
the God of the Bible. Now, the word longing means anxious, eager, or craving. Why did I call this point the longing God? Because it means He's anxious to save us. He's eager. He is craving to save us. That's not the angry God who doesn't even give people a chance. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, if God wants everyone to be saved, does He have the power to make that available to us? So, if He wants it, but He doesn't make it available, does that make any sense? That He would not give us a chance? I want you to think deeply with me for just a couple of minutes and the rest of our class time. I want you to think about how the Bible describes God. Now, I've got several of these passages. I didn't print them out except to make the list. Revelation 13 and verse 7 describes Jesus this way, a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. You know what that means? Before God even created us, He had already determined, I want these people to be saved. And the only way this can happen is if God Himself comes and dies for us. He determined He was going to make a way for all humanity. It's John 3.16, For God so loved only a certain group of people in a certain country that He sent His only begotten Son. Is that what the Bible says? God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. He's not willing that any should perish. He so loved the entire world that He sent His Son. Now, are we to then that God only makes it available to people in the United States. He doesn't want any to perish. He sent His Son. He predetermined before He even created us He was going to make a way. But then it's limited. He's only going to give a few people a chance. In Luke twenty-two forty-four, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before His crucifixion. He's in agony. Sweat drops of blood are coming down from His pores. The Bible says he's dreading what was ahead of him. But he did that because he so loved the world. And yet certain people he's going to say, I'm not going to give them an opportunity. Luke 19 and verse 10, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Now, if we stop right there, I want you to, to just think about how she's describing this angry God who doesn't give people a chance. The gospel to them condemns them. And yet Jesus is the lamb slain. Think about a lamb being slain. An innocent, pure baby, a lamb, slain for us. Why? Because God so loved the world. Jesus knows what He's going to go through. He's got blood dripping from His head. He's here to seek and save the lost. Listen to this, Nehemiah 9.17. The Lord's talking here about His people, the Jews. He says, they refuse to obey. They were not mindful of your works that you did among them, but they hardened their necks. And in rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. That is, they rejected everything God put out there. But listen to this. But you are a God who is ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and you did not forsake them. Despite the fact they rejected you, they did not do what you wanted. 
you are eager to put. One version says eager to pardon, gracious, merciful, slow to anger. She says, Zarmina died and is now at the hands of an angry God. The Bible says, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Now, somebody says, yeah, but, you know, what if you weren't born in the United States? What if you weren't born amongst the Jews? What if you're in one of these other countries that's God-forsaken, so to speak? What if you're born in the Middle East and you're in Iraq? I want you to think about this. In the book of Jonah, where was it that Jonah was told to go? I thought I heard somebody say it. Nineveh. What do you know about Nineveh? Was Nineveh made up of, was, was it made up of God's people? Were they Jews? What were they? Not Jews, but Gentiles. They were Gentiles. At that time, that wasn't God's chosen people. And the people of Nineveh worshipped idols. They engaged in sacrificing babies. They were cruel, heartless, very, very ungodly people. They were about the worst the world had at that time. And, again, they were Gentiles. When you open the book of Jonah, in fact, if we're going to make the argument that this lady's making, how would a person in Nineveh have a chance to obey? We're not talking about God's people, the nation of Israel. This is far removed, far from there, wicked, evil people. A person who's born there, you would say they don't have a chance, right? Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1 starts this way. But the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up to me. And so God said, there's these wicked people out there. I don't want them to perish. My son died for them. I want this people to have an opportunity to be saved. Now, you know the story. Jonah, go. What did Jonah do? He made excuses. He didn't go. Why didn't Jonah want to go to the Ninevites? He didn't like them a bit. Why? He's prejudiced. They're not Jews. They're Gentiles. And on top of that, they are wicked Gentiles. He did not want them to be saved. And so he tried to run from God. And you know the story. Jonah flees. He's thrown into the sea. He's swallowed up by the great sea creature and is spit out on the, on the, uh, the beach. And finally he goes, but he's not happy about it. And when he preaches to them, the Bible says they repented in sackcloth and ashes. How did Jonah feel when they repented? He was very unhappy. He was so displeased. This is the prayer he makes. This is Jonah chapter 4 and verse 1. He said, I knew that you're a gracious God, merciful and slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents from doing harm. The book opens Jonah 1 and verse 1. The Lord said, there is a wicked, evil people, and I'm going to make sure they have a chance. And then when the chance was presented to them, they repented. And Jonah says, I knew it. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were eager to pardon people. I knew that you have loving kindness. How many other Gentile cities are there in the Old Testament that we maybe don't read about that God sent prophets to? 
I think there's a lot of them. In fact, when you read through the prophets, you will see God prophesying against Egypt. He prophesies against the Ammonites. You, in fact, you can go on. There's nation after nation after nation that God was telling them to repent. So what about a longing God? God doesn't want people to perish. So what's He do about it? We only have about three minutes here. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 20 This is what the Bible says. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What does Romans 1 and verse 20 mean? The creation itself is a testimony to the honest mind that God exists. You see the things that exist, you know they came from somewhere. They didn't pop out of nothing, like the atheists would tell us. So just creation teaches us there is a God. GBN has just put out a video in connection with Apologetics Press. I would encourage you to go and read it. It starts by saying, it might surprise the reader, because it was originally an article, that atheists and theists, believers in God, overwhelmingly admit that humans are predisposed to believe in an intelligent creator. The atheist Richard Dawkins, though he hates religion, he said, though the details differ across the world, there is no known culture that lacks some version of the time-consuming, wealth-consuming, hostility-provoking, rituals, anti-factual, counterproductive fantasies of religion. He says humans are so deeply designed or um, they have a deep desire that they want to recognize a creator of some sort. He calls it a lust for gods. The renowned atheist Sam Harris said there is an inherent human predisposition. Here's the point that I'm making. God made us as believers. You have to be taught out of believing that God exists. The atheists, the psychologists, the uh, people that study this, they all on both sides of the aisle admit man is born believing that there is a God. And so the evidence is there that there's a God, the creation. Man's born believing it. You think the Lord is nudging us in a certain direction? Acts 17 and verse 26 says, God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. He's predetermined their seasons and the boundaries of their dwelling. Verse 27 says, so that they should seek the Lord in hopes that they might grope for Him and find Him. He's not far from any one of us. And so the evidence is there. We are created that way. The Lord is close so that we can Find him. Matthew 7 and verse 7, the promise is made, if you seek, you will find. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, if you seek me, you will find me when you search with all of your heart. Now you put this together, what you have is this. We have a God who died for us. We have a God who made a plan to redeem us at his own sacrifice before he created us. Then he surrounded us with evidence that He existed. He created me with an inborn understanding that He is there. That is, He pre-programmed us to believe in God. You've got to be taught out of it. Then He providentially says He will provide a way for those who are true seekers. Can you believe we're dying at the hands of an angry God? 
and people don't have a chance because of what they're, where they're born, this does not match with what you read in the Bible. And I know time's up. Let me say one more thing. What about after I become a Christian? Now, I've talked about this many times in the past at Willow and other places. Some people think after you become a Christian, you're saved and lost and saved and lost. And even then, you don't know whether you can uh, count on going to heaven. 1 John 1, 7 through 9 teaches the continual cleansing of the blood of Jesus. When you read 1 John 5 and verse 13, it teaches that we can know that we have eternal life. I've said many times, we've done a good job of convincing Christians they're lost, but we haven't done a good job of convincing Christians that they're saved. The confidence that we ought to have as children of God should make me at peace. I'm ready even to die because I know what's coming when this life is over. If you go through all of these things and you look at how God has pre-programmed us, how He died for us, how He goes and seeks those who are lost, He doesn't want anyone to be lost anywhere. And if you seek Him, a way will be made. You look at all the Old Testament groups of evil Gentile nations and He sent to them. Now, many of them reject Him. But the same thing is true even in a Christian nation. The majority reject Him. If you go through these things, what you see is God is a God who is eager to pardon. He's ready to pardon. He's going to give you the opportunity. It doesn't mesh at all with what she's saying. The idea that we can't trust our Bibles, that doesn't mesh at all with what is being said. Now, I'm going to stop right here for now because we are out of time. Was there a bell or something? We don't have a bell or something? Okay, Chris, can you, from now on, can you go back and just go ring, 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 just make a sound like that? And then um, you can even wave your hand if you want to. But um, All right, any questions quickly before we wrap up? God is no respecter of persons. That's right, Acts 10, 34. But in every nation, he that believes and seeks him shall have everlasting life. Yes. We need to know how to answer stuff like this when it pops up because people are, quote, losing their faith over it. Okay, we'll stop there. Thank you very much.